Hi everyone, welcome back to Hypothesis. Uh, today's episode is all about tackling disease, which is a pretty broad topic, so something we'll probably return to at some point in the future. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, so first of all, what even is disease? It's kind of broad and it's hard to pin down like a proper definition, but broadly speaking, um, disease is basically damage or disruption to, cellular, to cells, cellular processes, organs in your body, and they can be caused by both internal and external factors. And when we think of disease, I suppose the first thing we want to do is treat them. Um, or yeah, or cure them. But I suppose or prevent them. That's what I was about to say. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, we let's have a vaccine this them. time. Yeah, preventing is probably the ideal scenario. Um, you don't even need treatments or cures then. Um, but uh, yeah, so just how does that even come about? Finding treatment, finding cures, finding drugs, finding any way to prevent disease, you need research and a hypothesis to start with, <laughs> a problem that needs to be solved. Um, so research will, can happen, you know, um, in, I suppose, a more academic setting. And mm. then a lot of the time, I suppose it does begin in an academic setting and then it moves more into industry even though it can start in industry as well, but the process of developing a, like therapeutics, it's, it's really expensive um, with all the steps you need to go through. So a lot of the time, you, you need to sell out to Big Pharma. <laughs> yeah. We can't afford it. So, yeah. so it's usually, yeah. yeah, it starts off in places like universities and then when it gets to the part where you actually need to either get massive numbers of people mm -hmm. involved or... You know. Or animals as well. So yeah. it starts research. Maybe you need to find models for your disease so you can test your new drug. Even, I suppose, find the actual cause of the disease. That's really important. If you can find the molecular basis of the disease, you can target the, the cause of it, which is ideal, <laughs> as opposed to maybe treating the symptoms. And so you can have different animal models, cell models, and that's sort of a, a preclinical um, aspect and then obviously once you have created something that is safe enough in animals you can move to clinical trials so that's mm. testing maybe your new drug or therapy on humans yeah, yeah. so uh, yeah so there's three main phases of clinical trials which you probably would have heard a lot about recently mm. with you know vaccine trials for mm. covid and all of that and uh, so phase one is purely just safety so for something like a vaccine or a drug what they do is they should hopefully have a rough enough idea from the preclinical work in either mice or monkeys or some sort of model organism mm -hmm. of what the correct dosage should be that isn't toxic but still effective. So they test a couple of different doses at this phase one um, with usually quite a low number of people um, just in case there are any negative effects. Um, and then when a phase one study is done and they know what dose is safe, then that's when they can move on to phase two. So phase two is when they proper, proper, properly start to <laughs> analyze efficacy. So they start to see, um, okay, so the, these doses are safe, but are they actually effective at treating this disease or preventing this disease, whatever the case is. And then phase three um, is only authorized once the phase two is done as just the same as phase two, but in a much larger group. So mm -hmm. you're talking more, um, you know, hundreds or thousands of people rather than tens. Yeah. Um, so it's essentially building in scale as you realize it's safer, you can mm -hmm. obviously give it to more people and not feel like it could be bad. Yeah, and like you said, it's really that's so expensive and yeah. And it's so crazy how like drugs and any therapies can go through, you know, the steps of research, preclinical trials, clinical trials, one, two, and then it gets scrapped at three, like yeah. it goes through so much. Yeah, and it's just crazy the amount of money and time and effort goes into that. 
and authorization has to happen at each each step along that process. Like you need to get approved to move on to the next stage every time before you can get some market authorization and before the drug or therapy becomes available to the public. And so even then when you do have your therapy, you need to develop that a lot of the time on a large scale. And mm. that can be really difficult. And I suppose that's stuff that, well, I personally wouldn't really tend to think about, but it is something that should be thought about, um, you know, producing it on a, on a mass scale and how you're going yeah. to get it out to people and all that. And I think that that's, I suppose, more on people's minds now with coronavirus and vaccine and how yeah. you're going to get it out to people and stuff like that. And you also, there are lots of things, as we've already mentioned, to consider when you're making a drug and even prescribing a drug. So, you know, how is your drug going to be released or, or taken into the body, how it's absorbed, how it's going to be distributed to the target site, how it's metabolized and then gotten rid of out of your body because it could become toxic, toxic if it just builds up, you know. Mm. It's not always that good. Like you said, we need to think of side effects. That's why we have all the clinical trials and efficacy is obviously really important. And then when prescribing drugs, you need to think of, you know, also combination treatments like mm. if you're going to prescribe one drug with another they can have different effects you can have additive effects where i suppose using two drugs could be the sum of what you would yeah. expect the two drugs to be and you can have synergistic effects where it would exceed what you would expect with using two drugs or alternatively you could have antagonistic effects where using two drugs at the same time would just be <laughs> disastrous and it's yeah. not as good as using one alone and mm. um, so yeah, when we're talking about disease, I suppose we'll be talking about it from a sort of more molecular approach because that's kind of what we study. Well, for me, anyways, in genetics, I look at it, you know, small scale, not yeah. so much. I look at a slightly bigger scale. Yeah, a, light, a little bit bigger. <laughs> yeah, but, um, as an immunology student, we look at cells sort of more and then mm-hmm. DNA level of enzymes also yeah, spill. proteins. And stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, smaller. So uh, yeah, I guess... Uh, Oh, just the last thing about clinical trials, like it is really important to emphasize when we say it's expensive, it is like extremely expensive. I mean hundreds of millions yeah. to get through a phase three trial. Um so that's why a lot of the time you'll hear, you know, an academic and maybe came up with some drug or something like that, you know, sold their small company or their idea, their patent to a pharma company. And a lot of the time that isn't because they just couldn't be bothered seeing it through. It's the fact that they physically can't. Yeah. You know, venture capitalists can get you to a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can get a few funders who maybe think this is going somewhere to give you a few million here and there. But who's going to give you hundreds of millions? Yeah. You know, or, or how are you going to get thousands of investors involved? That's just not feasible. So that's why you have to, yeah. a lot of the time, sell out to one of these big pharma companies because they're the only ones that can afford to make the loss if the drug doesn't work in the end, mm-hmm. in phase three. So, yeah, it's a bit of a rough system. But thankfully, um, it, it does have, have good results eventually yeah. a lot of the time. So uh, the first thing I'm going to talk about is monoclonal antibodies. So this is something, again, because of COVID, you might have heard a lot about. Uh, Trump famously received an, a monoclonal antibody treatment from Regeneron. Yeah. And, uh, but the thing is, he was actually given loads of treatments at the same time. And yeah. um, apparently part of it was just that he demanded to be given those treatments. The doctors didn't want to give him all these combinations mm-hmm. because they didn't know how to interact. But he was like, give me everything. So they, yeah, they how, they, did. how they interact foundational treatment. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Bring it back. Bringing it back. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah. Uh, so what are even antibodies for those who don't know? Yeah. Um, as an immunologist, I love antibodies. Uh, so antibodies are Y-shaped proteins that are produced by B cells in your immune system, and they can specifically target um, a small part of another protein, um, which, and usually it's a foreign protein, and it's called an antigen. This thing that we're recognizing. So you might hear 
when people talk about vaccines, they're talking about the spike protein, mm -hmm. which is the antigen that we're trying to target with yeah. coronavirus, because the idea is that an antibody binds to a protein, like the spike protein, and hopefully stops it from being able to work. Yeah. So for a coronavirus, it needs spike proteins. That's what latches onto our cells and helps the coronavirus enter our cells. So if you have this antibody that grabs onto it and physically blocks it from touching your cells, yeah. then that, that's how you become immune. That's one of the ways anyway. Um, so, but what can happen is sometimes you can produce antibodies against your own proteins and that can lead to all immune diseases. But that's again, something probably for another yeah. episode that I'll, I'll probably want to talk about <laughs> in a bit more detail. Um, so the, the diversity of antibody responses in our bodies are like absolutely astounding. The amount of different antibodies you can make to loads of different types of really specific yeah. proteins. Um, basically, your immune system is able to shuffle genes mm -hmm. in such a way that it can make so many different combinations are they of antibodies. Like randomly as well? Like yeah, it's, just, it's essentially a random yeah. shuffling. And then what can happen is, it's probably a bit too much detail, I'm going to say anyway. Um, so they shuffle randomly to have all these different combinations. And then even when it finally gets something that can recognize this foreign um, protein that you're trying to target, it can then from there mutate even just smaller parts of the antibody. So even yeah. though it's going to roughly recognize it, it tries to even improve on that and, and recognize it better and better in this process called affinity maturation, um, which is, big which is really good. Big, big words are coming out. You know I'm deep into the immunology when you hear that stuff. Um, so yeah, so a, a vaccine, for example, is trying to show our immune system the, sp <clears throat> the spike protein and gets to produce antibodies against that spike protein uh, so that we can remember how to latch onto it. So um, apart from just physically blocking um, something like a spike protein, which is called neutralization in immunology, uh, antibodies have loads of other uh, functions. They can help uh, these cells called phagocytes, which are essentially things that eat, um, yeah, eat things. Yeah, so like, yeah, they, they engulf. Mean? That's the word. Um, so yeah, the, I think the word phagocyte actually comes from some Greek term, uh, like to eat or something like that, if, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, yeah. So like for example, bacteria. If you look up, um, you know, phagocyte eating bacteria or something, you will see. In it, you know, this video that some scientists took of a phagocyte literally eating a bacteria. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Uh, but what antibodies can do is actually help these phagocytes recognize these um, foreign entities, whether it's bacteria or viruses, as something foreign and almost acts as like, you know, a help to get it in. It's almost like if you're talking about eating, it's almost like a sauce, you know? <laughs> it's like really enticing the, the phagocyte to, to want to eat this thing. Uh, maybe that's a bad, bad uh, analogy. Um, so anyway, they essentially tag these foreign proteins so that they can be recognized easier. Wait, phagocytes. Sorry, the antibodies tag the protein, yes. which then oh, the yes. phagocytes can then recognize yeah. the antibody and go, oh, what's this? It's tagged to. Oh, it must be something for me to eat. Yeah. Um, and then this, this tagging can also be used, uh, it can also be recognized by other immune cells, such as like natural killer cells, which, come on, that's the coolest cell yeah. name ever. When I first heard that, I was like, how could you not want to study immunology? There's a cell called a natural killer cell. Anyway. <laughs> Um, they, they essentially can then recognize cells, either infected cells or bacteria or something like that, and essentially shoot uh, certain enzymes at them to get them to die. Um, very, very interesting stuff that I won't try to go too deep into. Yes. That's all you need to know about. <laughs> in your exam, 100%. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so 
then this is, a, this is all about antibodies produced in our bodies. So when you're talking about monoclonal antibody treatments, we're essentially trying to replicate this, but instead of getting your body to produce the antibodies, we're producing the antibodies in the lab and then giving them to the person. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes it's very difficult to make a vaccine that's really good at training your immune system, okay, make antibodies against this. Yeah. So it's actually much quicker to maybe make the antibodies in a lab and then just give them as a treatment to the person. And would that, so I'm, you know when you give a vaccine, if it lasts for a long time, people, yes. you think if you're giving them a monoclonal antibody, are you just giving it to them and then it'll like last for a while and go away? Exactly, that's actually something I was just about to get into, oh, yeah. Sorry. So that's an advantage and disadvantage of monoclonal antibody treatments, depending on what the disease is. So uh, yeah, ideally, if it's something like coronavirus, a vaccine is much better because you're going to make those antibodies every time you encounter coronavirus, mm -hmm. hopefully for the rest of your life if the vaccine is good enough to yeah. provoke that kind of response. Whereas monoclonal antibodies, they'll protect you for a period of time, but eventually those antibodies will degrade mm -hmm. um, and they'll, they'll be gone and your body will know how to make more. Yeah. Um, but there are cases where it's actually better to have antibodies that don't come back. So one example where it's actually better is uh, for treating inflammatory diseases. So mm -hmm. I said I wouldn't really go into autoimmunity, but this is just a <laughs> tiny dip into it. So uh, people can have inflammatory diseases like inflammatory bowel disease or Crohn's disease, things like that, yeah. where they produce too much um, inflammatory proteins such as TNF-alpha, which is essentially the name of this protein that activates your immune cells and makes them go a bit nuts. So if you're producing too much of this, your immune cells will actually sort of start to attack your own cells and they'll just... You know, it's not a good situation. Yeah. You have chronic inflammation. Inflammation is only supposed to be something that attracts immune cells in an emergency. Yeah. But you have constant inflammation. It's causing pain, all of that kind of thing. So you can actually have an antibody that's made against TNF-alpha, so against one of your own immune proteins. Mm -hmm. So obviously, if you made this protein in your own body, yeah. that wouldn't be good. You'd be yeah. fighting your own immune responses. Not a good idea. Because no, yeah. then when you do need that inflammatory response, you won't be able to make it because your body will be too busy fighting mm -hmm. it. Um, thankfully, we can make monoclonal antibodies against TNF-alpha, this mm -hmm. inflammatory protein. So if someone has an inflammatory disease, you give them these antibodies, yeah. and then for a while, that inflammation is gone. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Does it only last for a certain amount of time, and then would it not just come back? Yes, see, it, it does depend on the type of inflammation. So it could be the kind of thing you would administer it as needed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, you know, hopefully if there's a disease, you wouldn't be... Mm -hmm. give, keep giving the monoclonals, which might actually work against them, this other disease that they're starting to encounter. So it is oh, a bit okay. of a balance. And there are actual monoclonal antibody treatments for really bad chronic inflammation, which are actually designed to be recycled. So your body can actually learn how to recycle these antibodies at least a few times before they get degraded, oh. which is really cool, yeah. Cool. Because there are cer certain uh, receptors in our body that are good at um, recycling antibodies, and they sort of take advantage of that. Um, and then, as a bit of a side note, I actually have a picture in my room here. I was about to say, like, TNF-alpha, and I was like, oh, his favourite protein. It's, not, we it's, go again. it's not even my favourite protein. Um, Do you have a favourite protein? Uh, let's not go into that right okay. now. <laughs> I have favourites. I don't oh, think I have a single yeah, like, favourite protein. That's, yeah, it's like picking a favourite child, yeah. you know? I, I couldn't just name one. <laughs> but TNF-alpha is definitely up there. But uh, what I was going to say is, on a side note, there is a framed picture of the protein structure of TNF-alpha in my room here um, and that's because my friend Matthew got it for me and just thought it would be hilarious that I'd have a framed picture of TNF-alpha. It, it was hilarious and sometimes I look at that and I'm like wow that really makes me look like such a nerd to just have this protein structure sitting on my shelf. Um, you so yeah. learned it off by heart. Yeah. 
so able to redraw it. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd recognize it now if I saw it. Yeah. Um, if someone was showing me what's this protein, I'd definitely be able to say, well, that's TNF alpha. <laughs> I would never. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be able to tell. Oh, no, no, it is kind of like, it well, it's a ribbon structure, so it's yeah. essentially a little bit of uh, it just looks like colors. a little squiggles yeah, for people of. listening since you can't see it. Yeah. It's just squiggles. Uh, and and they're different colours to be fair, but yeah. They are different coloured squiggles. Yeah, if you look up uh, TNF alpha ribbon structure, you'll see exactly what this looks like. And uh, you'll see it's kind of just a bunch of squiggles. It is. Um, so, how do we make uh, monoclonal antibodies? Um, that's probably something that I'm going to go into a little bit actually next time. It's a bit of a spoiler, but next yeah. time we're going to talk about like interesting discoveries and stories. So I'm going to talk a bit about how we make monoclonal antibodies because that's just a cool uh, process, I think. Um, but when you hear someone talk about monoclonal antibody treatment, by the way, the word monoclonal means one clone. So it means all the antibodies are going to be the same. Yeah. So that's different to if you just naturally got coronavirus, let's say, mm -hmm. you, your body would produce a polyclonal response. Okay. You wouldn't just recognize one part of coronavirus, you'd recognize several parts and try to make different antibodies. Or is it monoclonals, you're only giving them the part that's most important for your immune system to recognize. So I think if yes. you're making lots of antibodies towards something, if there's one that's more effective, eventually you'll just make that one, or will you always make this one? That is a very, very good question. Um, and actually, it, it really uh, seems to depend on the disease and that sort of thing. Because there are, so there are certain parts of diseases that can be, they're called immunodominant. Mm -hmm. Essentially, your immune system is primed to recognize that more than other parts. Yeah. So your immune system sort of knows, okay, I know for sure that part is something that I, that I can tackle. Okay. But sometimes uh, diseases can take advantage of this. So influenza, for example, is quite good at having an immunodominant region that can vary. So it has, so there's a part of influenza that your immune system is really good at recognizing, but because influenza changes all the time, like that's why every year we need a new yeah. flu vaccine, um, your immune system does not know how to respond to this new version every year, because yeah. that part that it recognizes is the part that influenza knows how to change. Okay. So, um, and it looks like this sort of priming can happen from your first ever exposure to influenza. So... Uh, some people think that maybe for a really good in universal flu vaccine to work, you would actually need to vaccinate someone before they ever encounter the flu. To train your immune system before it ever sees it. No, that's not the part you recognize. This is the part you're going to want to recognize because this part doesn't change. You know? Yeah, so it's a, it's a very complicated that area. Complicated. But, but uh, that, that's why vaccines are so fascinating. <laughs> it's really not simple, but it's like once you get it, it's, it's yeah. just really cool. I don't know. I think it was just this whole battle between pathogens that are constantly trying to evade yeah. um, evade us and then us finding out what's the best way to utilize all the immune responses we have because mm -hmm. they're so varied and just picking the best ones for every scenario and getting a vaccine to stimulate that kind of response. Yeah. But anyway, that's just, that's just me talking about how much I love vaccines. And thankfully, I'm going to talk about vaccines in more detail later in this episode. Um, but that's it for monoclonal antibodies for now. That's all I've got to say about that. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about something people have probably heard about. <laughs> antibiotics <laughs> oh. so um antibiotics used for a fairly long time mm -hmm. um, and they target uh, bacteria specifically and they can be bactericidal so they kill bacteria or bacteriophagic so they just stop the growth now and actually i'm going to stop you there because yeah. i remember hearing that uh bacteriostatic mm -hmm. um antibiotics so these ones that just stop the bacteria growing without killing them mm -hmm. and that they work way better in people that have a very good immune exactly. system response. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, because you need to kill them off to 
because they're bad and if they're not good then you can't do it to yourself yeah so that's why um they need to have like immune response yeah exactly exactly you know exactly like a doctor yeah <laughs> um but uh what makes a good antibiotic um they need to be cheap-ish they can't be super super expensive to make um they need to be stable enough have a long half-life so be able to get where it needs to be and you know in the body yeah, to do. yeah. oh yes yeah. sorry in the body <laughs> <laughs> and um, it can be nice if it has a broad spectrum of activity so it can introduce lots of like yeah i can see you looking at me like mm, i don't think <laughs> so. i don't know if that's a positive <laughs> yeah it can be a positive however yes. it can also be bad because you have let's say good bacteria in your body mm. and it can also kill your good bacteria but mm. if you don't know what's causing a bacterial disease yeah you're you know, just gonna want then you're just like i need to kill something i need to kill bad. everything yeah i need to kill yeah everything that's, <laughs> that's bad so i'm just going to use broad spectrum and also specific so you can classify your antibiotics and um, i suppose in many different ways but i'm going to classify them um, with what they target in the bacterial cell and mm. um, so they can target either um, I suppose, well, they're all physical parts of the cell, but either the cell wall, I suppose I'll just get into it, <laughs> the cell wall, um, which we don't actually have. Oh yeah, so actually this is really important to say before I begin. Yeah, that our all cells, your non-cell biologists said yeah, that. Our cells in humans are, they're called eukaryotic cells because, <laughs> I'm going to get this so wrong as well, because it's like <laughs> something that we're supposed to just know, but it's yeah, basically You're supposed to know from day one biology, yeah, so your, no pressure. Your DNA, your genetic material is in a nucleus, so it's in a small compartment, basically, yeah, broadly speaking. That sounds right. Yeah, and then bacteria are prokaryotic cells, whereby their genetic material is just floating about within just the cell. Just surviving. Just surviving. <laughs> no nucleus at all of it, I can't believe you said that. Anyways, um, sorry, excuse me. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, so it's actually, it's not easy, but it's easy enough to <clears throat> find parts of the bacterial cell that are different to our own cells because you don't want um, an antibiotic that's going to target a bit of the bacterial cell that also exists in your own cell. Yeah. And this is kind of the reason why it's harder to find, to get drugs against like yeast cells and like mm. yeast infections because the yeast cell is yeast are um eukaryotic, eukaryotic. Yeah. so they it's it's more difficult to find parts of the cell that are different to target that won't actually target your own cell yeah yeast are way more related to us than yeah. uh, bacteria yeah. which is you know from maybe you wouldn't just naturally think yeah. that but some biologists would know very well but i suppose yeah. to, to say to someone that you're much more closely related to yeast than you are to bacteria yeah. probably just seems like a strange thing yeah <laughs> but um yeah i was going to say fresno but then i was like that's not fresno but i think anyways doesn't matter that was just a side note so anyways the parts of bacteria cell the bacterial cell that are usually targeted by antibiotics are the cell wall which we don't have and um, mm. bacteria can have one or two cell walls i'm pretty sure yeah um, and a very famous example is penicillin so that targets uh, cell walls then you can have antibiotics that target DNA synthesis, so that's making your DNA, um, targeting RNA synthesis and protein synthesis. Mm. And so they're all really important. Like I said, your DNA is what in, like has the code to make your proteins. And yeah. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but the central dogma of oh. biology is DNA makes RNA, and then the RNA makes protein. 
And so targeting any step along that pathway will stop the bacteria from producing a protein that will um, <laughs> help the bacteria live. Sorry, there's just a sound and we don't know if you can hear it or not. But yeah, we're going to hope that people can yeah, hear it. Sorry, anyway, you're hearing some, it. A little bit of background noise. Yeah, um, but anyways, um, that, that's basically, broadly speaking, how the antibiotics work. And I'm sure we've all also heard of antibiotic resistance. And this is not ideal scenario. Um, so it's basically where a bacteria can mutate and somehow evade the antibiotic or it basically, no, not evade, it becomes resistant to it so that the antibiotic doesn't act effectively to kill mm. or stop the growth of the bacteria. And it's, it, it's a bit tricky to explain because I was thinking about it, even though I, I feel like people have heard of like, you know, if you don't finish your antibiotic treatment, then, you know, that can lead to antibiotic resistance. And it yeah. does. And it's not because, anti like, ha the presence of antibiotics doesn't cause the bacteria to become resistant. Mm. That happens randomly. Yeah. And the presence of the antibiotics basically selects for the cells that have become resistant. So all those that are not resistant die and those that are survive. And that's why you need to finish the dose because you need to make sure that if something, you know, because um, some of them can maybe, I'll, I'll go through the, the different ways of how they can become resistant. But one of the method ways, for example, is that um, the bacterial cell can reduce the amount of antibiotic that can enter the cell. Mm. And so if you don't finish the course um, of your antibiotic treatment, then there just won't be enough antibiotic to kill the bacteria. Like that's yeah. like you need to have enough there to kill it off. Yeah. And so that it can't make new mutations because each time it'll become more and more resistant. So mm. yeah, so we can reduce the um, concentration of antibiotic that can get into the cell. And it can do this by the downregulation of porins. And they're kind of big words, but basically you have the, the cell has pores that the antibiotic can get through. And if you just don't have as many, then it can't get in. Or you can increase the selectivity of channels. So there's also like channels which are kind of like pores, but just a way of stuff to get through. And if we make them pretty selective, then something random like an antibiotic won't get into the cell and it won't be able to reach the, the target site. Mm. It can also have efflux pumps. So this is something Yeah, that, I, I always thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, it is. There, there, like two years ago, me and Amandine were studying antibiotics a lot. Yeah. And uh, yeah. like, we, we used to know all about this stuff. Yeah, no, nothing anymore, but anyways. <laughs> The efflux pumps uh, take up the antibiotic that has gotten into the cell and just chucks it out. And yeah. it's like, uh-uh, you ain't reaching your target site. <laughs> <laughs> and this is like uses energy, so that's it. It's an active form of transport. And you, if you overexpress efflux pumps, if you use lots of them, then that's pretty effective for getting rid of antibiotics. Yeah, so um, if you're a bacteria, get those efflux pumps yeah. going. Oh my god, it's like, what is it? Ah. There's also ways of inactivating the antibiotics. So the, you can add chemical groups and remove chemical groups and put it up at a molecular level, which we won't get into because it's just too complicated. <laughs> Even I don't really get it that much, but it's basically that it can't interact with its target. And another way to stop it from interacting with its target is by altering it. So the bacteria can actually, through mutation, maybe change the target, what the target looks like. It yeah. can, you know, add an extra group like it can add yeah, so it can sort of change its appearance to exactly so in a, in a way yeah yeah 
So instead of like the jigsaw puzzle fitting in, it won't fit anymore kind of thing. Yeah. You get rid of the sides. So that also stops the antibiotic from um, getting to where it needs to get to. And once a supposed resistance mutation, we'll call it, happens, it can spread along, like within the colony. That's why you need to kill them all. Yeah. <laughs> because bacteria can do so, reproduce very, very rapidly and it'll spread and it will just make way more bacteria. Yeah, that's not even just reproducing, they're really good at sharing DNA. Yes, like if, exactly. if one of them learns something, it'll go, hey, look what I found, yes, and give so it to the next one. That's called horizontal gene transfer. So yeah, it can pass it on. And so there's ways of doing that in, I suppose, like a copy and paste mechanism where they can still keep their resistance and pass it on. Sometimes it's more of a cut and paste um, where the, the bacteria that's giving away won't have it anymore. Mm. You can also have this thing called transformation where the bacteria will take up any DNA that's in the environment. And this happens when bacteria are in a state of stress because they can actually use DNA for nutrition. It has nutritional value. And so if you just uptake the DNA, um, they can eat it. Or alternatively, they can um, integrate it into their genome. And that way, it can keep their resistance. Um, but yeah, the problem with this, from our perspective, I suppose, is that you can get multi-drug resistant pathogens, which is quite... Not good. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, yeah, so they call them like MDR, isn't it? Multi-drug resistant yeah. bacteria. And then there's XDR, which I was like, that's even more... Scary, isn't isn't it? Wasn't it like extremely drug resistant? They call it like XDR oh, or yeah, something. Probably. Um, yeah, they have all these classification names that get progressively scarier because yeah. the bacteria recognize and more like, and more. It's the body. kind of scary to think that we might end up in a place where antibiotics might not be effective or as effective anymore. Yeah. Um, We're already pretty close to that place. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's um like the as well as resistance, bacteria can be tolerant or persistent. So tolerance is where they can kind of slow down their growth rate, their processes to, which if, if they're basically, if they don't metabolize stuff as fast and they won't really be destroyed by the antibiotic and if they're persistent, they sort of go into like a dormant state and um, where they're tolerant to antibiotics, but they're metabolically inactive. And they also form biofilms and biofilms I think have become a real concern. problem. Yeah. yeah, like a real concern. And um, they basically, it's like they produce this little sticky liquid thing. Yeah, it's, it's more it's more of a matrix. It's kind of harder than a liquid. Yeah, I'm trying to think. How would you uh, sort of imagine it? Sort of, I, I well, I always imagined it as sort of like a, a protective ball around you. Yeah. So if you created biofilm, it would be like you know those Zorb balls people go running. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just always imagined it yeah, like it that. Yeah, kind of like that. Yeah. Uh, and they all have them, and so the bacteria can live in it, and it it adds like a, a physical barrier, and the antibiotic can't get to it and it happens a lot in like medical equipment and stuff yeah internal like tubing and stuff and the bacteria can get stuck on it and biofilms can form and it's really yeah so that yeah that happens a lot where biofilms form on these medical instruments that then you could introduce into a patient and actually transmit these biofilm fill you know fill the bacteria Mm. to the patient accidentally yeah and so that's why you know keeping things sterile is very important but the problem is some of these things that you use to keep things sterile yeah. don't work because the biofilm is so effective at mm. having this protective coat on the bacteria yeah so very dangerous stuff and mm. um, yeah and then i think it's important to talk about as well like this whole idea of combinational therapy that sometimes if you throw several antibiotics at a problem it can be 
good or bad because it yeah. can be good in a way that it's unlikely that there's going to be a mutation there among that whole population that one of them figured out how to stop all the bacteria at the same time. Mm -hmm. So if you essentially throw all the guns at it at once, you're probably going to kill them all. But the problem is, if you don't, and there is some sort of way, like they're in a biofilm or something, and they're yeah. learning how to fight these bacteria in a way, um, you could, that. yeah, you, you, oh, sorry, Dan, Dan, yeah. Dan, it's not the bacteria. Um, we're not going to talk about bacteria on bacteria warfare. I'm uh -huh. in this, uh, <laughs> but uh, then you could actually very quickly make bacteria that are resistant to all of them. Yeah. So it could be one way or the other. You could completely wipe it out or make things way worse. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's all uh, sort of hard to know what way this mm -hmm. stuff's going to go. It's difficult. Yeah. You want to talk about vaccines? Of course I want to talk about vaccines. I always want to talk about vaccines. So here we go. The, the first episode where I can guilt-free talk about vaccines. <laughs> I've found a way to bring it up in almost every episode so far, but this one... It, it, it fits the theme. It fits the, I, uh, I bring it up every time. Yeah, I'll, I'll find a way. Um, so yeah, vaccines. So vaccines are usually made from a weakened or killed form of the pathogen, or at least they used to be. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the modern vaccines are quite different to that. Um, so there's uh, loads of different ways you can make vaccines now, especially. So um, one, one way is you use a protein subunit. So you use... A little bit of a protein. So essentially, yeah, it used to be an activated or killed pathogen. So you would get, let's say, um, TB, you would kill it or like just make it inactive and then just inject it into someone. Yeah. It, there's not much more than that. And mm -hmm. um, now, obviously, it's, it's not simple to just inactivate it. It did take a while yeah. to figure out how to do that. And they have to put it through loads of cells first, all this sort of thing. So essentially, it's simple enough that you give them what they have to recognize. Yeah. The problem is that sometimes. Um, your immune system overreacts because it looks like the actual pathogen mm -hmm. and you can actually get too much of a response so it's not good thankfully modern vaccines have sort of overcome some of those problems and um, so again protein subunit vaccines were one of the first major steps in overcoming that so that's where you take just the bit of the pathogen that you actually need the immune system to recognize so coronavirus that's spike protein mm -hmm. but actually the coronavirus vaccines the ones that are right now being approved actually don't use this method. Yeah. They, they still use the spike protein, but they're not using this exact uh, way. I'll, I'll go into that a bit <laughs> later. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so you use the subunit and you can add an adjuvant. And adjuvants are something I think are really cool. I won't, I won't go too far into adjuvants <laughs> right now, but anyway, really cool stuff. So you put in this protein subunit, so a tiny bit of a pathogen, and then the adjuvant, which is essentially something that tells the immune system, this is a threat, you need to recognize this. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how protein subunit vaccines worked. Um, and then, so why would you use these subunits? So again, they don't have as much of a immune response as putting in the whole organism mm -hmm. like they used to do with vaccines. So uh, they're much safer. The, the problem is that they might be less immunogenic. So sometimes because it's only a small part of a protein, your immune system will say, well, that's not something you recognize. Look at yeah. that tiny thing. Yeah. So that's why the adjuvant is a very important thing in, in those types of vaccines. And then the newest vaccine technologies, um, mRNA vaccines and viral vector uh, vaccines are completely different. So mRNA vaccines work by, uh, so mRNA, as Amelie said before, is a part of the central dogma. So DNA makes RNA, which is what makes protein. Yeah. So the, an RNA um, is you know, the last step before making a protein. So if you inject mRNA into your cells, your cells will turn whatever that mRNA is yeah. into a protein. And just to say that mRNA is mature Me RNA. It's oh, messenger RNA. Messenger, excuse me, messenger RNA. Yeah. 
and it's just the last the last part before it gets the person because there are other steps yeah that the RNA we are simplifying it a little yeah bit. just so you know when he's saying mRNA he's, it's the same as the mRNA or the same as the RNA in the central plasma yes it's it's the same <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah so when you put this mRNA vaccine into your body you're essentially getting your own cells to make whatever protein is encoded by this mRNA. And for these biovector vaccines, that protein is the coronavirus spike protein. So now you might be wondering, if you were listening to me earlier, uh, if, if you're only making that small spike protein and there's no adjuvant, then why is your immune system still recognizing this? Why are these vaccines so good? What's the conspiracy? There is no conspiracy. Um, so mRNA um, from viruses like this one um, is actually immunogenic in itself. So your immune system is so good at recognizing things that it knows the difference between mRNA that's from a virus and mRNA that's from your own cells. So it sees this foreign mRNA and it goes, uh-oh, I'm, I'm ready, yeah. uh, let's go. And then your cells start producing this spike protein and, and then it's like, that's it, that's the bad guy. So yeah. then they start learning how to fight the spike protein. So they actually, it looks like for the moment anyway, don't need adjuvants, these mRNA mm -hmm. vaccines. Now the problem is we don't know how long these immune responses last. Yeah. So maybe, you know, this could be good at provoking immune response that lasts for a year, mm -hmm. but unless you have an adjuvant, you might not get a strong enough response. So who knows, in the next few years, you might see adjuvants come out for these mm -hmm. mRNA vaccines, or we might not, yeah. who knows? And then the other type, uh, which is what the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is doing. Oh yeah, I should have mentioned, the mRNA vaccine is being used by uh, Pfizer and Moderna. Their current coronavirus uh, vaccine is using mRNA. And this other technology I'm going to talk about, BioVector, is being used by the Oxford AstraZeneca group. So a BioVector vaccine, kind of similar in a way, and um, what they've done is they've taken a chimp adenovirus. So this is a virus that infects chimpanzees, so it doesn't know, really know how to infect human cells too well. So that's why they're pretty sure it won't be able to mutate and do something yeah. dangerous to us because it hardly even recognizes human cells. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it does still know just about how to infect our cells. So they've modified this chimp virus um, so that all it does is produce spike protein. So again, similar enough to mRNA, except instead of being directly translated, it sort of incorporates itself into our cells' DNA first and then expresses it. So okay. very similar technology, um, but it does have its differences. <clears throat> Wait, it, so brings in, can you say that again? Yeah, so uh, so the mRNA, which I talked about first, yeah, is no, just, I, yeah, 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 so it's just the RNA, turns into protein, that's it. you're saying that they're using the chimp yes. vector, so that it won't integrate, but then you're saying that it is going to integrate. No, sorry, that, that won't maybe um, mutate as well, and be able to adapt to our cells, so it knows okay. how to integrate, but it, it doesn't really know what to do with our cells beyond that, it doesn't have... Uh, it, the rest of its genes aren't yeah. optimized to infecting our cells. So it doesn't really know yeah, how yeah, to yeah, yeah. cause disease. You, don't, you know what I mean? Yeah, okay. it, it's not good at spreading itself. That's probably the best way to okay, put it. Okay, yeah, sorry. I thought you meant as in that the actual vector wouldn't be able to get into the cell in the first place. No, but of course like it needs to do no that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they use this chimpadenovirus, it gets into our cells, and then it is what <clears throat> produces the protein. And similar enough, our immune system recognizes that this is some sort of virus, and that's why you get the immune response, even though there's no adjuvant. So, yes, uh, that, that's how those modern vaccines work. Um, but again, some of those older vaccine types we might still need, because there are some diseases where um, mRNA vaccines and viral vector vaccines might not be good enough. Every disease is so different that um, 
it de-deputize your immune response. Like for example, with the reason we're really lucky in a way that coronavirus is a virus and for this type of vaccine is that your immune system is recognizing the mRNA or the viral vector yeah. in these new vaccines. So it's getting ready to fight a virus. Mm -hmm. So if you were trying to make a vaccine against a bacteria, for example, and you use a viral vector vaccine where you're producing the bacteria proteins from a virus, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean, yeah. then your immune system will be there ready to see a virus and it'll see a bacteria and it'll react in the wrong way, okay. potentially. Yeah. And that's sort of what they think will happen. So they're lucky that the type of vaccine they're using is actually really appropriate for coronavirus. So we still need to look at other vaccine technologies for different diseases, especially things like malaria. We still have no malaria vaccine. They've been working on it for decades. Yeah. And that's because it's a very complex disease. It's actually a parasite. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's almost closer to animal than it is to, you know, bacteria or virus mm -hmm. in a way. So, uh, yeah, uh, it's not always as simple as, uh, even though obviously the coronavirus isn't a simple thing, but in terms of pathogens to vaccinate against, we were lucky that in a way that it wasn't something way more complex yeah. like a parasite. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm uh, going to go into a bit of the history of vaccines now. So uh, smallpox is something that uh, you probably haven't been infected with because it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> Thanks, vaccines. Uh, so next time someone asks you if vaccines are important, just ask them if they know anyone who has smallpox. And they'll say no. Because they'll it doesn't be like, exist. what is smallpox? Like, yeah, maybe they won't even know what it is. Um, and it was a very, very serious disease. And I just think it, it, you can't even... It can't be overemphasized, you know, yeah. how important that is that this disease doesn't exist. I know, and I think it's really hard for people, like for myself anyways, to just even imagine, like you can't imagine that something doesn't exist anymore, or that it was there, or that it was so bad. I find it really difficult to, like, you know, like imagine about how bad something was and how yeah. terrible it is, um, just from hearing about it. And But it, it is crazy. Like, I... <laughs> We were looking at photos and stuff, and mm. that it definitely hits home then. That yeah. The situation. Yeah, we're, we're showing a lot of photos in our lectures, and that definitely sort of hits home when you see, you know, children in, you know, in beds covered in, you know, smallpox. Yeah. Um, you see kids with polio who have these iron lungs. They're in yeah. these, this massive sort of chamber that's helping them breathe. Um, you know, re really depressing stuff. So to see yeah. that these things aren't around anymore is just amazing. Mm. So, uh, yeah, now the thing is, vaccines in the past, as I said, use very different technologies, and some of them, you know, weren't the best. They were, even for those old vaccines, though, mm -hmm. they did the job really well, as you can tell. Polio is essentially wiped out. It's only, um, it only really exists in, I think, two countries now, mm -hmm. Afghanistan and Pakistan, I want to say. I'm not 100% sure about that. But it's essentially, wild polio has been eliminated. Um, smallpox has been completely eliminated. The only place it actually exists is in labs in like the mm -hmm. US and Russia. And it's actually being looked at because it's so serious as a potential bioweapon yeah. that if someone started a war or if someone broke into one of those labs and took it, because we actually have no immunity to it next, we don't need to vaccinate people for it yeah. because it doesn't exist. It would actually spread really quickly and hurt a lot of people mm -hmm. as a bioweapon. So thankfully, um, we do have vaccines for it, but we might even be able to make better vaccines to it if it ever spread again because yeah. someone released it. Uh, so the vaccines in the past had to make trade-offs in a way because they were using these old technologies where it was like you're going to either get a massive reaction or not too much of a reaction. Um, so again, it's improved drastically since then. You used to get the odd adverse effect. Now it's even more rare than it was. Mm -hmm. And even in those older vaccines, adverse effects were very rare. So um, 
the first thing we want to talk about is the polio vaccine. It's an interesting story. Um, the oral polio vaccine, which was the first one, I believe, was developed by Albert Sabin. It was a live attenuated mm -hmm. vaccine, which means it was still live polio, but they'd modified it in a way um, that it, it wouldn't be as infectious, so it wouldn't cause the same yeah. level of disease. So they were still kind of giving you polio, mm -hmm. but it wasn't giving you the same symptoms. Your body could learn to fight it, so you'd become immune. So that's, you know, that was fine for the time, for, well, for a while. Yeah. I'll go into that. Uh, then there's another, there was another polio vaccine made, because there were several groups working on it, and the inactivated polio vaccine, um, which was developed by Jonas Salk. So it's for the rest of the story, I'm going to talk about the first one, the oral polio vaccine is OPV, and then the inactivated polio vaccine is IPV. Um, so the inactivated one uh, was less uh, immunogenic, so it wasn't very good at training your immune system, but also it wasn't live polio, so yeah. it wouldn't give you any symptoms. Mm -hmm. So again, there's that trade-off. Uh, so the oral one also had an advantage in that it gave direct immunity from when the pathogen enters. So once your body learned how to fight mm -hmm. um, the polio and that vaccine, you would never be able to get it to any extent again. You're, even from entry, like your mouth, everything would have immunity yeah. to polio. Um, now the problem with that oral polio vaccine was that even though it was really effective, it could, in rare cases, about they reckon two to four people out of every million people vaccinated with it, it could actually revert back to normal polio. Mm -hmm. um, so you'd vaccinate someone and then two or to four of every million or so would actually end up getting polio, which is a very serious disease. Obviously, you know, it's a terrible thing that they gave that to people. Yeah. But then, of course, it's, it's all about balance. And unfortunately, yeah. that's, it ended up, you know, being something that contributed to wiping out polio, but at the cost of giving some people polio. But, you know, you could argue those people probably would have got polio anyway if there was no yeah. vaccine, because it was spreading so rapidly in, in many places, even in the US. Um, so in recent years, they've switched to the slightly less effective IPB vaccine um, because polio is on its last legs. So even if the vaccine isn't as effective, polio isn't really yeah. spreading like crazy. Yeah. So they're hoping that IPB vaccine will be good enough. Because uh, actually, interestingly enough, the, most of the cases of polio in the world now are actually derived from the vaccine, of the oral polio vaccine, because it was used so much. Um, that that strain is actually spreading and it looks like they might even need to come up with a vaccine against that type no of polio. Way. Yeah, vaccine against the vaccine. So, um, so yeah, in the past it was a, a lot messier. Yeah. Uh, vaccines have improved since then. But then again, as I was saying, it was extremely rare and it still worked. Yeah. Um, but thankfully we have moved past that. So you can, I don't know, that's one that the anti-vaxxers will probably jump on. I've, I've seen that a lot where they talk about, oh, this vaccine could give you polio yeah. and that sort of thing. First of all, it's old. Second of all, it's still, in, on a global scale, yeah. did the job. Um, so, yeah, it's, something, but it's, it's worth discussing. I don't think yeah. it's something worth ignoring either, just because it had its failures. That's not something, it's something to learn from. Yeah. You know, I think in science, that's what you need to do. You can't mm. just say, oh, that's a dirty thing we don't talk about. It's, it's yeah. important that we acknowledge that that kind of thing could happen to those vaccines, yeah. and that now we know how to deal with that. So, uh, so there are other diseases such as like measles and mumps and whooping cough and um, that largely persist due to a lack of vaccine uptake. Mm -hmm. So we could have no measles in the world, theoretically. We could have no mumps, but people don't take their vaccines. Mm -hmm. And that's why these things, you know, more and more now are, are starting to, uh, to spread. And I think something that sometimes people don't, don't really realize is that the longer this lasts, 
the, the more of a chance there is that one measles virus out there will get some sort of mutation that means it's a new type of measles virus yeah. that even our vaccine won't be able to work against anymore. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we had it wiped out, we would never have to worry about it again, like smallpox, yeah. back of our minds, didn't, didn't exist anymore. So it really isn't even just on a community level. This could be, you know, pandemic level stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's just so frustrating when they have a solution and it's just not being taken up mm -hmm. because of conspiracy, you yeah. know, and, you know, completely unbanded conspiracy as well. There's a, uh, that whole paper, I, I, that's definitely a story I want to talk about another part, yeah, but uh, it had so many flaws. Anyway, <laughs> I won't get into anti-vaxxers right now. Definitely another time, though. Yeah, Can't we'll wait. need another hour for us to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then another interesting vaccine to talk about, because it's quite different to those examples I was talking about there, the BCG vaccine. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't know if this was a thing in the media in general, or maybe this was just in my immunology Twitter bubble, but uh, around... <laughs> A few months into the coronavirus pandemic, there's a lot of talk about using BCG to prevent coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And anyone listening right now uh, who hasn't heard about this would be like, probably thinking, what the hell? That's a stupid idea. You know, yeah. a vaccine protects you against what's in the vaccine. Yeah. If BCG is a vaccine against TB, why the hell would you use that against coronavirus? Uh -huh. And uh, it's actually because the BCG is one of these old types of vaccines, which I said do sometimes have their problems. So it's essentially this. Uh, what 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 they what the BCG vaccine is? It's a bit different to like the polio ones, where it's not an inactivated form of human TB. It's actually a cow form of TB. Okay. So um, BCG is similar enough to human TB that yeah. uh, when you inject it into into your body, your body will know pretty well how to fight TB. Yeah. Now it's not the best vaccine in the world because it is made from cow TB, mm -hmm. so it doesn't always protect you. That's why. It doesn't have brilliant success out there. Like tuberculosis still exists. It's still, if not the biggest, one of the biggest killers in the world. But it's good at stopping most major disease from yeah. TB. Um, but because it's this whole bacteria, this whole cow TB bacteria, it actually trains your immune system in more ways than one. So these new vaccines only show you like the spike protein, one tiny yeah. bit, train you just to do that. Something as broad as BCG can train your immune system in loads of different ways. Yeah. So they actually... Uh, there's some evidence that actually trains your immune system to fight things, not even bacteria, like loads of different things, because there's so many markers on it that are just, yeah, that are just really good at activating your immune system in a different way. It's this thing called innate immune training, mm -hmm. where essentially your immune cells get epigenetically reprogrammed. And so I'll talk a little bit about what that means, because those are big words. Yeah. So essentially there are small changes, mod modifications made, to the DNA of the immune cells as it gains some experience. Yeah. Um, and that experience can then be used to learn how to fight future pathogens. Yeah, it's changes to the DNA, like not the actual sequences. Yeah, it's more of like attachments to it in a way. Yeah, Modif yeah, I don't yeah know which changes it. the conformation and the shape that it's in. And that can lead to you know different cells being turned on and turned off and whatever else. Mm. But yeah, it's not like the sequence is changed. It's yeah, so it's not a genetic modification. It's sort of a, it's like, it's like yeah, it's an it's epigenetic also, modification. Is essentially something that so your cell modification, which is yeah. another big word. Chromatin, <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. even know where to begin. All so, I, I, from what I understand, if you're a geneticist, maybe you no, interrupt I know, me. Can I just say that when I think of chromatin, all I think of is a bowl of noodles because oh, yeah. when you look at the photo of it, there was just this one photo in a lecture on the board, and it was just a circle. Of and I was just sitting there for the whole hour being like, 
cells are reading the DNA code differently. Mm-hmm. I think that's a fair way to say it, what yeah. epigenetic modification means. Uh, so then your immune systems react differently to different, uh, different diseases. So actually, this is being investigated for even new vaccines to see, can we actually make vaccines that are possibly non-specific? Maybe just a vaccine that is good at training your immune system in a non-specific way to fight loads of different types of disease yeah. rather than specifically for each one. Yeah. Now, it's probably going to be a bit of a mix because if it's non-specific training, you're going to be able to fight a lot of things slightly better. Yeah. Whereas for things like coronavirus, we want to fight this thing perfectly because yeah. it's very dangerous. So, uh, yeah, there's going to be interesting vaccines in the future that are more general. I feel like that's going to be even harder to get people to take. Well, it, yeah. You know? And also, like, when you're saying that, this is just an outrageous statement and an outrageous thought. Uh-oh. But, yeah, I was like, because you're like, oh, like the bacteria just produces random proteins or whatever else. And then I was like, <laughs> oh, could you genetically modify the bacteria to produce like something crazy, like a spike protein and then... Mm. It would just be there in the cell and your body could yeah so then that comes back to the idea that there are loads of different types of immune response and sometimes you don't want to mix these things yeah so sometimes if you have a bacteria and virus thing together yeah, yeah, yeah your, your immune system might recognize one of them first and think that's how you respond to all of that mm, so yeah yeah the immune system is a very complex thing but a great thing to study you know <laughs> fantastic would highly recommend yeah uh, love my so degree genetic advice. Nah, just, <laughs> genetics isn't as cool come on it's pretty. It's very cool. It's pretty cool. You wouldn't have any immunology without genetics. Oh, let's not start this there. It's true. It's a fact. You, you wouldn't have anything like chemistry if we're going that far. And, and yeah, who likes chemistry? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we won't go into we that. Respect, we respect. We respect chemists. Yeah, I, I respect it. I did two we're years just, of chemistry in college, and it was. I did one. Oof, no, I didn't either. I did rough. like half. Half of the year. No, I did not. You did a full, full year. Did the full Sorry, year. I did a full year. Yeah. I'm basically a chemist. Yeah, um, and then and then you did geology in second year, and I did chemistry because of the modules I chose. I think geology is great as well. Yeah, I mean, I never actually did geology. I just had people tell me about how great it was, and it was it already was too great. late. I'd already signed up for Good. chemistry, <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, I hate my life. <laughs> anyway, I know chemistry is great. Uh, if you get, it. I chemistry, think it's something that if it clicks yeah. with you, and also the thing is that chemistry is actually really important to understand oh, biology, it's, it's and true. especially in genetics. Well, I don't know about in immunology as well. Oh I'd yeah, no, chemistry is important. Like, I, I don't regret taking chemistry. Yeah, because the way everything interacts, I'm like, oh, protein. And like, I obviously always simplify it to like, you know, jigsaw pieces sticking together and that's how they interact. But like, it's more of a chemical thing. Like, And they're always like, think about the chemistry and the shape of molecules and all this sort of carry on. And I'm just like, Yes, yeah. I remember back to my first year. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's a reason they call you know a lot of cell biology stuff. It's called biochemistry yeah. because it's it is all at the end of the day yeah. about chemical reactions. So I think to have no chemistry background and go into biology would be not a good idea. So that's yeah. why they do teach you a bit of chemistry, like it or not, when you're yeah. when you're studying biology because it is. An and it is thing. really important, yeah. especially if you're studying the smaller, like the molecular stuff. Yeah, I mean, when I say I didn't like chemistry, there were aspects of it I didn't like yeah. that were not related to biology. Yeah, what, yeah Besides that, were closer well. to physics. They just confused me way too yeah, much. Yeah, so much maths. <laughs> but but I, I got through maths it. Maths is important as well, though. <laughs> <laughs> Since we're going through every subject that's important in biology. It's things that are important that we wish weren't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally. 
um, yeah, so that was most of the stuff uh, I, I want to say about vaccines. Um, I think, yeah, there's another example actually, pertussis, so whooping cough yeah. is a disease people would know about, um, happened in kids, and it's been spreading a lot recently, again, because people aren't taking the pertussis vaccine, which mm -hmm. is really effective. You can actually even Google these graphs of like vaccine uptake versus incidence of disease. Yeah. And it's amazing, you know, the correlation that, you know, some rumor gets around or a lot of people just start saying, you know what, whooping cough isn't really a thing. I'm not yeah. going to vaccinate my child. And enough people do that and suddenly it's spreading in hospitals again. Yeah. You know, it is uh, very frustrating as someone in science. But of course, one of the big challenges of science is science communication. This yeah. kind of thing here, getting to the public, yeah. trying to actually reach people who you know, you can, you can teach something about it, you know, because it, it isn't something everyone's going to enjoy studying in detail. Mm -hmm. We do. Yeah. That doesn't mean everyone does. But it's also difficult, I suppose, to break that detail down and make it, you know, explain it in a way. Because even when I'm trying to explain it, I'm like, okay, don't use big words, but, and don't do this. Yeah, but sometimes you just have to connect. Yeah. There's no other way of explaining it. I know. It. Yeah. It's difficult to figure it out. But it is really important, and it is really exciting. And I suppose now, when it comes to disease and stuff like that, we are sort of aiming more towards, I think, preventative and as opposed to, you know, well, obviously treatments as well, but that would be ideal. Um, yeah, and the personalized side, medicine yeah. as well. It's yes. becoming like a big thing, you know, um, with like gene therapy and, you know, they're using <laughs> induced, I was like, oh yeah, I won't use big words, but like <laughs> induced pluripotent stem cells and stuff like that for like regenerative medicine. And it's just, it's a big field and it's exciting and it's, yeah, like even in the future, there could be slightly more personalized vaccines because they're starting yeah. to even discover things like some vaccines have quite different responses in men versus women. Mm -hmm. So in the future, you might have vaccine A for men, vaccine yeah. B for women. And of course, we know from coronavirus, sometimes people react to diseases very differently based on yeah. age. So you might even have a vaccine that works way better in old people yeah. than young people. And, and vice people versa. also react differently to drugs based on their genetic makeup. Yeah. You know, having a certain variant might make you able to break down a drug faster or make it more toxic and this that and the other and you know there's some drugs now i'm, I'm pretty sure there are drugs that you, you you look at their dna and you look at their variants before you even give them the drug or to know how much like the dose the drug dosage um is important as well and like when we were talking about the personalized stuff like they're the making medicine more personalized first of all it's reaching it the you know the exact cause of the disease and tackling that but also it sort of reduces an immune response because you know it like stuff mm. like tra like transplants you know yes. it can be rejected and whatever you know like things can go wrong and you, you can have a big immune response but if it's personalized if it's coming from your own cells yeah you know, then your immune system won't recognize yeah, that you can threat. take yeah. cells out of your body you can change them you can modify them put them back in and you know that also could you know it reduces the immune response it can it could be better we don't know yet we well I feel like people that are studying that are like, it's definitely better, but we're still figuring <laughs> it. But they are doing tests, you know, there's tests, there's, um, there's uh, definitely animal trials, I'm not sure about clinical trials, and, you know, they can study the disease in um, cell models and stuff. So, yeah, big field, yeah. so much more that we didn't even talk about. But um, Yeah, but then, you know, this yeah. whole episode, as I said at the start, is quite broad, yeah. tackling disease, and it's something that we definitely weren't short on time, and we're coming up to the end of now, yeah. so I think that's going to be it for this one. Definitely yeah. want to return to this topic, yeah. I think. I know I do. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Because there's so much we missed out on. Yeah. But anyways, thanks for listening. I might even get to talk about vaccines more. Yeah, again, even though we had a whole segment on it. Yeah, I'll find a way. Yeah, we'll do adjuvant dissection. Oh, that would be my game. We'll talk about adjuvants in the future.
Okay. So thanks for listening, guys. Thanks, guys. See you next time. See ya. Bye.